Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Owen Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Calls, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week, we have a DVD shelf coming, listeners, that I've been excited about for quite a while uh it's a show we i've been wanting to talk about on the podcast for a long time and that uh i know you're also a big fan of and we also recorded it to peek behind the curtain like a week ago it had a super great time doing that so i've been looking forward to people listening to it and giving us feedback and that's law and order we're talking law and order this week noel i'm excited chung chung <laughs> yeah no with i'm really G. excited about his yeah. Yes, with a G, not with a K. This isn't Goonies, Kate. <laughs> yeah, the listeners, I, we were having a bit of a discussion on Twitter about how to spell that, and I was clearly in the wrong, and Noel, you're absolutely right. This week at the DVD Club, joining us uh, from Previously.TV and Extra Hot Great are Mark Blankenship and returning to the podcast, uh, Sarah Bunting. That was super fun. Uh, but aside yeah. from looking forward to getting to talk Law and Order, uh, what how, how's your week been, Noel? How, what's what's been standing out to you this week? Um, I'm still like in a little bit of mourning about Manhattan getting canceled. Yeah, I saw that. I, I yeah. you, it's it stinks, but you also can't be too surprised. I imagine they got terrible right. ratings, but no, it and, still sucks. Right, and as outsiders proved, um, WGM can clearly get an audience, and they just went, oh, well, if we can get an audience with this, but not with this, I guess we don't have to pay for this anymore, and that's what they decided. I'm sure that there was more more math involved, but I mean, that is kind of how it feels. Yeah, that's, it. I still haven't made it all the way through the premiere, or the pilot mm-hmm. of Outsiders, uh, yeah, I will. And when I do, I'll have thoughts on the, for the podcast, but it's just, it's not, it's not for me. Uh, yeah. So, whereas Manhattan is much more in my wheelhouse. But I, I'm looking forward to, in a big way, uh, to Underground. I'm actually super disappointed because they're premiering it in Chicago next week, but I'm working, so I can't go. Um, but I, I have my fingers crossed that maybe that'll be more of a successor to something like Manhattan than, yeah. than something like Out, Outsiders. Or Salem, we should mention, still going over right. there. Which I haven't seen a second of. Yeah. But it feels slightly different than what we theoretically will yes. be getting uh, with, yes. uh, with Underground. Well, we are keeping things short up here at the top because we have a lot of TV to talk about. We're going to want to talk about a few things, too. We'll be going yeah. uh, kind of in depth with a few of these shows. So, And we also have a, a lengthy, and we should also mention up here at the top, uh, earmuff-worthy uh, Law & Order segment at the end of the podcast. There's some, some language... So just be aware of that. Um, so we're going to keep things short here and head right into our, our week in comedy. Uh, what say you know? Yes? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. So we'll be right back after this. The plot is gaining steam. So back to this old thing. Here's what's been happening on Gallivant. Will Richard kill his former best friend who stole Queen and Crown and made him look Princess 
said goodbye since Richard's sure to die. And now she's on her way to Spencer Island. Gosh, so much to dump upon your doormat in our half-arsed compromat. Still, there's plot holes we must fill, and though I doubt we will, we're gonna try and go. That was one of the songs featured in this week's season finale. And we'll see. I would have guessed series finale. I did guess series finale last year uh, of Gallivant. Uh, I would guess series finale again, but who knows? Uh, it was super fun this year uh, to, to watch how they took Gallivant. And uh, I'll be talking about that up here at the top of the Week in Comedy. Uh, first up is going to be Gallivant, Battle of the Three Armies, and the One True King to unite them all. Then Noel's going to talk Grinder, Grinder v. Grinder, And I'll talk a little Man Seeking Woman card as well as some younger uh, before we go to Fresh Off the Boat, Year of the Rat, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Karen Peralta, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I'm back at camp with Josh! And Jane the Virgin, Chapter 32. I just, I never tire of the juxtaposition, no, never. Uh, anyways, Galavant, uh, like I said earlier, I thought it did a really good job in its second season of pivoting uh, its tone and be having that extra level of self-awareness while still um, capturing just kind of the goofiness that made season one fun and, and the way that they adjusted the character dynamics to really embrace evil queen and goofy friend sidekick who's also kind of useless uh for for the omens and character really really worked um i would love to see what they would do with the third season but i think it's also very wise that they don't end on a cliffhanger they a bit but they basically don't end on a cliffhanger this season at least compared to last season um again like i said i would be pleasantly surprised if they got renewed but surprised nonetheless so um i i really kudos to the team for taking a kind of familiar trajectory and story and making it a lot of fun and with even better music, I would say, this year than last year. Um, so I had a lot of fun with Gallivant uh, this season. Um, and I was kind of bummed that the, the Grease Live kind of took over all the Sunday night attention for it. Um, but because I didn't watch Grease Live, I was actually working. I came home and DVR'd Gallivant. Uh, I did not care at all about Grease Live. But you watched at least some of Grease Live, Noel. So. I watched some of Grease Live. Um, yeah. yeah. What did you think? How did they do? Um, well, I should say first off that I just have a really low tolerance for Grease. Um, so I managed to watch like an hour, an hour and 15 minutes of it before I just went, yep, that's my limit of Grease. Um, but I think this was a really interesting live musical. Um, it did a lot of really interesting things televisually, um, that you don't get on the NBC musicals. Um, so there was a lot of camera work, a lot of tracking shots, some really great, scene transitions from like the uh bedroom sequence into the uso number was just really magnificently staged and really impressive um the biggest fault with grease live apart from being grease and apart from its really terrible original song that it gave to carly ray jepson um was the fact that it incorporated a live audience and then didn't really allow its live audience to be an audience they just kind of stared there blankly for most of it being allowed to clap at the end of numbers but they were just like there to fill out crowd scenes and it was really weird and awkward and i was happy that there was an audience because the nbc musicals tend to feel so hollow without one but this just also felt really weird and i'm trying to figure out how a live show can do a live audience at some point correctly i was listening to tom lorenzo's podcast we were talking about this this week and um 
And something they mentioned, because I, I, I watched some scenes, but I watched songs. I didn't watch sequences. And one of the things that really, really was glaring to them, because they said the same thing as, as what you're saying, Noel, is that the, when they have this audience, they don't, they're not letting them laugh. At yeah. the laugh lines. And that was something that really stood out to me in The Wiz, and which is what made all those unfortunate scenes with Common just die, is that there's supposed to be laugh lines where it's a joke and then the audience laughs, and that's yeah. part of the experience. Uh, Grease is a musical that has a lot of those. Uh, yes. And they all fall really flat. And if you have an audience there, if you don't have an audience, there's nothing you can do about it except like tweak the, the script. But if you do have an audience there, like, did they, were they not laughing? No. That's insane. That is crazy yes. talk to me. It is. It was really bizarre because, I mean, it just didn't make any sense for them not to be laughing or even chuckling a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so they just got to applaud at the end of numbers and the end of scenes. And it was just very odd to me that this was something that wasn't happening. Yeah. I did watch a few of the numbers. I watched Kiki Palmer's number, which you already referenced, uh, for anybody I love, where she does the, the quick change. The USO. The USO. Yeah, so was, great. Which was super fun. Um, yeah. A lot of fun. I, I really liked, um, I liked, but was not bowled over by um, There Are Worse Things I Can Do, uh, which I think got the most buzz of anything coming out of the show. Um, but I think because I wasn't watching the show, I wasn't connected already to the character somewhat, and I also wasn't contrasting that performance with some of the less stellar ones that I've heard about. Um, sure. So I thought she did a, she did a, a good job, but it didn't blow, blow me away. However, I just you know discovered in listening to other people talk about this that her father had died the day before, yes. and that is an astonishing performance with that context i mean i can't even imagine so she, she i thought she was solid before i found that out and when i found that i was like just like hat is off to to someone being able to to pull through and really deliver in a live set, setting like that with some some you know real dramatic material too so that was impressive and and the main thing that stood out to me watching some of these sequences was like you had said the camera work because um, it's just it looks like you're watching a movie it, the yeah. way that they're swooping in and out and cutting back and forth. Um, uh, there was a thing going on, tw going around Twitter a bit this week of the AD for Greece calling shots uh, for Greece lightning. Yeah. Uh, I saw that. Yeah. It's really cool. I, I highly recommend yes. people check it. Cause I never think about that, especially in a, but in a live context that, that really highlighted for me how much the camera was moving, how much they had to synchronize to make that work. Um, and I think on the whole, it really did. So while uh, I was not super impressed with most elements that I saw for Grease Live, um, I think that's a really interesting development for the form. Yes. Yeah, so, I absolutely agree. I look forward to seeing how that, you know, gets how that affects things moving forward. And if the whole audience thing is maybe something they can finally figure out with the next show. Yeah. Hopefully, fingers crossed that someone figures out how to use an audience. And I'm also interested to see how the reception of this and the stylistic approach to Greece plays out for um, Passions, their mm -hmm. Passions play that they're doing next month. Or, yeah. sorry, in April. Yeah. Well, and the last thing that this really brought to my attention is um, I kind of hate Greece now. <laughs> oh god it's the pits well because i only knew it as a kid and didn't ever think about its gender politics other than just having a bit like you know because my parents are awesome so they were not they were telling me of course this is a terrible moral of the story when i was watching greece you know as a kid but you just kind of sing along to the music and it's catchy and you don't really think about it when you're a kid and yeah 
examining it now, it's just horrifying. Right. Horrifying. Well, it's Taming of the Shrew, and it's not a very interesting version of Taming of the Shrew either. And Taming of the Shrew's better about it than I think Grease is. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, like, you know, lines from Kaniki, like, oh, did you rape her? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In Summer Nights? Uh, yeah. Did she put up a fight? No, no, don't, don't act. What? No. No. Why did you cut that? Because that is rape. So <laughs> that's not a funny thing. Oh, the 50s. Anyways, um, that, so I'm glad, I guess, now that I have, am now have a more thoughtful relationship with Grease, Live, with Grease as was Grease Live. But what I want to hear about next is another show that I did not watch, but I feel like I really need to just throw onto the docket, put a, on my, get a season pass going on my DVR, because I keep missing it, and I don't want to, because it sounds amazing. Grinder, Grinder v. Grinder, The Return of Elephant? The Return of Elephant. Um, no, this week, um, Timothy Elephant uh, returned, because he had worked it out with... Um, grinder new orleans that he only had to work monday through wednesday so he could go back up to idaho to see um his girlfriend and so there's just a lot of meta hijinks in which basically it boils down to the fact that they have a mock trial to see who is less of a fake lawyer (laughs) and who is more of a real lawyer and it just lampoons a bunch of tropes like he had to say something for me, like that thing in House where Wilson would say something and House would get the light bulb. Mm-hmm. They lampooned that throughout the entire episode about how that has to be like a narrative convention and everything. And it's really, really funny. And Elephant is hilarious. Like, he's really, really funny this week. He's been funny the entire time. Um, but they acknowledge the fact that they want Elephant to, like, only pop up every now and then because... Um, Stu and uh, Claire conspire to, like, try to get both of them, both of the grinders, out of the firm by having Elephant keep showing up every now and then, just like a pop-up for, like, a little while. Not very long, just, like, once in a while. And it's just like, oh, you guys, you guys are meta without being, like, super in your face about it. So there's a, there's some really nice levels to the grinder, and this episode was just really, really funny, and I really enjoyed it. And yes, you should put a season pass, and you should catch up on the elephant episodes at least because they're fantastic yeah well i mean i like the show starting out with its pilot so i'm sure as yeah. it's oh, found great. its yeah. footing even more i would enjoy it more uh yeah. but the next show that i have is man seeking woman and this week's episode is card uh i wanted to specifically mention it this week because unfortunately i will no longer be covering it at the av club this is a show that very few people watch and even fewer people apparently read reviews about so uh, i'm no longer doing weekly coverage but i did like this episode uh though not quite as much as some of the previous ones the actually the episode next week which i've seen uh quick preview has fred armanson and he's hilarious and it's probably my favorite of the season uh so y'all make sure to watch next week uh i don't know if the premise of the episode is out there yet so i'm not gonna say who Armisen is playing, but it's good. Uh, but this week's episode, it was the first episode that didn't deal with romantic stuff at all. It followed Josh's job. Um, and as he decides he needs to follow his passion, which apparently is game design, never been mentioned before, but apparently it's game design. So he goes and takes coding classes and ends up in a class with advanced coding with everybody else has giant craniums that are like glowy and they can have, they have a hive consciousness that tells them the, they just like, they still about they need just manipulate their neurons until the answer materializes in their brain. That's how they do all their coding. Um, so that was that was fun. And then it ended with um, Josh getting going back and trying to get getting his office manager job 
back, like which was already a promotion for him. But he gets that back by the end of the episode. And then he may not have graduated from coding school, but he does graduate from his shitty college beer to mediocre beer in bottles. And they have a graduation ceremony and everything at the convenience store. And I don't know about you. Do, is this a moment you can remember when you're like, you know what? Whether or not it's, whether or not it's beer, but just be like, I actually have a job now. I can afford the, the on-brand type of cereal. Is this the thing uh, you remember for yourself? Um, not really. Huh, um, okay. Yeah, no, because, I mean, like, I've been working pretty steadily off and on since I was, like, 16. Okay. So you, so, if you had this moment, it was, like, when you were 16, you're like, I'll buy my own movie tickets. Right. Well, no, I think, like, my first big purchase was, I like, the I started working in, like, September or October at a Blockbuster, and I bought, like, a Blu-ray player, like, that December, and that mm-hmm. was, like, my first big purchase ever as, like, a working person was a DVD player, so I think that was, I think that qualifies. Yeah. What was your, do you remember what yours was? Oh, no, no, because I, my job was to be a student, and then mm-hmm. it was to be a student, <laughs> and then eventually, <laughs> like, my first, well, I had a summer job at Potbelly's, but, I mean, I, on the other hand, I was also gigging and getting paid to be a musician from the time I was in middle school, so, like, yeah. It's kind of, but I definitely would like babysit and um, uh, every now and again, and uh, my money went directly into hot lunch uh, yeah. and Buffy DVDs. Those are the two okay. things. Cause that, my, seems, that seems like a good way to spend your money. Of course, clearly. Why would I, like, you know, a certain percentage always had to go in the savings account for college, right. but then it was like, okay, I don't have season four yet, so that will be happening in the next month, you know, sort of a thing. Uh, and my brother started me on that, by the way, my, my, I must say, with a Christmas present. But, uh, yeah, so but just that notion of um, being like, yeah, I can, you know, it's t- why don't I actually get the, the healthier for me version of this food or whatever, I think uh, is something I could absolutely relate to. So I thought that was a really fun way to do something on the show that wasn't romance uh, related. Yeah. And it's a good change of pace. So uh, I think everybody who watches will really enjoy next week's episode. And I will certainly still be watching it and still have thoughts even if I don't have reviews over at the AV Club anymore. Um, You'll have reviews here. In my heart, absolutely. <laughs> um, this week's Younger was also another really fun episode, and I, that continues to be just one of my go-to kind of joy shows, and I love that there's so many of them on TV for me right now, because it's Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Jane and Younger, and just having these shows that um, just kind of give me a, no matter what the episode's about, I'm gonna have a smile on my face, uh, just because it's so it's such a warm show so yeah. i continue to love younger i continue to have nothing new to say <laughs> other than it's still awesome so i'm going to instead throw it to fresh off the boat which came back this this week with year Finally. of the rat uh this was awesome it was a really good episode i i enjoyed it a lot i think part of my enjoyment just stemmed from the fact that i had gone through fresh off the boat withdrawals um but i think the other big thing was is that it, like the um Santa Claus episode that that they had in December. This was another really good episode about them navigating a cultural conflict in a really funny way. And it also allowed um, the parents to have a weird moment of saying, hey, and deciding which sitcom star it sounded most like. And again, just one of those random little moments that should have probably ended up on the cutting room floor, but didn't because... Both of them just make everything sing. Um, what did you think about the episode? Oh, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, the the Asian, Asian American um, 
group that they find was entertaining. (laughs) It was was a hoot. I suppose parts of Russia could count as parts of Asia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and just the notion that we've been looking for you. Yeah. (laughs) You can have some actual Chinese people. Uh, but um, but just everything that goes with Chinese New Year and and like the 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 cutaways to the just the smoke I thought was pretty fun. Uh, <laughs> if you can breathe right, you weren't there. Um, yeah. And and also I think regardless of uh, you know Chinese New Year or other holidays, everybody knows the envelopes. So right. I thought that was a, a fun touch point as well. And and ending with the way they did um, at the restaurant uh, and with yeah. first Jessica's excitement to share her culture and then just really over it. I think right. it's a nice way to end it too. Because there's nothing worse than having to endlessly educate people about your culture. There's probably nothing worse than that. Yeah. I would assume because we're both white yeah we're and... both very white <laughs> yeah so people don't want to know about our culture they know no, too much because already. it's out there yeah, yeah it's out there too much as it whether is, they want so. it or not yeah right yep. um but no i thought it was a lot of fun it was a definitely a really solid return uh what about brooklyn 99 we got to meet mrs peralta which was great yeah katie seagal Katie Seagal uh, was really really it took me a, like i forgot that she was playing jake's mom so it took me a little took me like two minutes to realize it was katie seagal and then I just went, it's Katie Skull, yay! Um, no, I I think my favorite thing about this episode, especially about the A plot, was just, I knew, I knew that Amy would be great with parents. I knew it. <laughs> she gives good parent. She gives good parent. She gives, like, the best. She had a binder <laughs> <laughs> just devoted to his mom about everything. And so, no, it was just... It was a nice way to sneak in gags about like, and what is Jane Seymour up to? And just, it was, it was a really fun episode. Um, I enjoyed the uh, escape from the room sequence with um, Holt and um, Scully Hitchcock and Gina. I thought that was actually more fun than I was anticipating it was going to be. Um, I didn't really care about the boil and the- Body cam um, thing? Yeah, the body cam thing just didn't really- clicked in for me at all um but the the episode on the whole was really really good and i had a lot of fun what did you think about it well you gotta like any mom whose uh like life goal or whatever is diane keaton i mean come on right i mean did you see her in that that vanity fair cover yeah. where she's just she's like, like dressed like diane keaton and everyone else is in battle she's like i'm diane keaton what yeah. you can lean suggestively towards the camera while you arch your back I'm I'm gonna be over here being Diane Keaton because I'm awesome. Right, it's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so that was that was fun and just like the attention, like the, those kind of choices for the character, I thought yeah. really worked and were and were a lot of fun. Uh, and I also enjoyed the escape the room sequence. I liked the body cam sequence more than you did, I would say, or that that you know C plot, I guess it would be. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I, I I had a lot more fun like watching Holt have to deal with Scully and Hitchcock. Uh, was was pretty pretty delightful as and as well as the start to get a crack into backstory for one of them the no this yeah. is not that show we do not care about your backstory uh so I, th- I thought that was i thought that was a lot of fun so yeah not the best episode ever but i think no. also really a solid uh development of the world yes absolutely well speaking of development of the world we got uh with crazy girlfriend we went back to camp with this yes. week's episode, and we got a, more of a window into uh, exact like because because I I knew that 
or we knew that they were like sweethearts at camp but that can mean a lot of different things so that was like a super intense letter that we got from from rebecca as should be expected but um also getting josh's perspective on their relationship at the time and looking back on it now i thought was actually surprisingly effective plus white josh white josh i think it's super awesome that we get potential queering of a character I mean, are we, though? I mean, I don't know. I'm like, I, I kept waiting for them to kiss. Yeah. Like, kiss, kiss. And I just went, kind of happened, but I wasn't quite sure. And I'm like, I'm excited to see if it does happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I, like, because they, yeah. they threw that in there toward, at the, like, almost the very end. And yeah. then we're going to, more on this development later. But I, I really liked the way that Daryl reacted and the way that yeah. they, and how much of it you could really read any of a number of ways and so he doesn't really know how to react but he's yeah. if nothing if it is a move he's it's, it's a move there's no other thing it's a clearly a move uh first of all it's super sweet because yeah. nice to see somebody appreciating daryl but second of yeah, all that's true uh second of all i love daryl's reaction is like he's not really sure how to react but if anything he's flattered that yes you know that that white Josh would make his his body you know his body fitspiration would make a move on him. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think that's a really nice thing for the show to do is that Daryl's just like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. And I and think that's good. He's like smiling, but he's not necessarily smiling. But then it seems like he's smiling. It's just such yeah. a, a great way to to deal with that, and also just to get more like just that brief interaction we get with white josh and hector and greg too where yeah. we're just like again making them feel more and more like people which they haven't necessarily to this point yeah. so yeah i think it's i think it's good but what, the main plot, plot was definitely what we we're getting at camp so how did that part of the show work for you um generally okay um i i enjoyed the um the sequence on uh blowy mountain or mm-hmm. whatever it was called. yeah blowy point um, Blowy point. That's it. No, I'm going to keep... I love that the windbreaker thing just kept being a running gag. That she just completely and, committed to it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, no, that was really good. Um, and then I just liked... I was really... I think my favorite part, apart from the emotional aspect of, like, getting some perspective from Josh, which was really good, was just this... The show's really nice exploration about, like, this kind of post-feminist do it do it for him but do it for yourself type of thing that mm-hmm. was going on with the musical number but also with how they were trying to buck her up basically to make her feel better it was just really interesting and i thought that the layers there were really really were really good and i think that's what i enjoyed the most i mean like any musical number where they're doing like a photo shoot and the photographer has a t-shirt on that says male gaze was just i mean how can you not love this show that's like, <laughs> how will we get Kate to love us even more? Right. Male gaze photographer. Oh, that was awesome. Absolutely. Uh, and because some of the, the, I wasn't sure how they could go with that. Um, yeah. The girls, like the mean girls camp thing. And yeah. Which is the, really worn out, but this worked yeah. okay. Yeah, it worked. And, and I don't buy it for a second. No. But I still enjoyed it. <laughs> so Right. And. It's a good, like, kind of counterweight to just, like, trying to figure out, like, again, like, similar lines to what, like, Supergirl likes to think that it's doing and does to various extents. But, like, this idea of certain strains of feminism at work and the value of those types of things. And, I mean, I think Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is coming down pretty hard against, like, this kind of 
post-feminist third wave type of approach of putting your putting yourself up because it puts you out there more so for that male gaze even if you're thinking it's you're doing it for yourself and i think that that's really interesting and really fascinating that a show is doing on broadcast television let alone on the cw a network that i think is doing really great stuff but you wouldn't stereotypically you wouldn't expect it on the cw yeah uh, I think that uh, they did manage to get me a l- lot more on board with uh, Heather and Greg this week. Yeah. I th- which I think was, if they were going to do that, it was necessary because yeah. it kind of came out of nowhere and didn't feel sustained. So I, th- I thought this was uh, a good way to do that. Any uh, any thoughts on, on that corner of the episode? I was happy that they did that. Um, and yeah, no, I was just happy that they did that because like you, I felt like it came out of nowhere and yeah so no i was happy that they did that yeah the, and, the yeah. barista the dead barista the space barista <laughs> <laughs> no that that was like a cute little gag i thought mm-hmm. um i didn't need more than what we got from it and i'm glad mm-hmm. we didn't get more than what we got from it either yeah yeah and, and also giving a reason why greg who is a charming at times difficult but a charming person doesn't have a romantic partner it's because it's not because oh who would ever want to go out with gray it's no it's because he keeps chasing them away because he's got commitment i think that makes more sense and kind of again helps to fill it a little bit more uh well that just leaves our last show of the week then here after crazy ex-girlfriend which is jane the virgin and uh i i want to be fully on board but I, i gotta admit i'm starting to have trouble with jane having fantasies about her teacher because it's too similar for me for the Raphael stuff with it's her boss. Sure. It's this attractive, you know, person in position yeah. of authority over her. And yes, he's also great and smart and, and super pretty and everything. But, um, and, and if it's, it's, then it, it's in keeping, it could be a character trait, I suppose. But for a show that tends towards, again, and this is my lens and my bias, but I looking at it with a feminist lens and everything, it's kind of hard for me to not, see it as a little problematic what, what did that bother you at all what did you think about that i was fine with it as like the idea of like a dream that mm-hmm. she has because everyone has dreams about yeah. that kind of stuff and that's fine and i mean given how hunky he is i'd be kind of surprised if there wasn't a dream at some point because mm-hmm. he's a good looking guy the fact that they're going to kind of explore this next week at least based on the promo i just kind of went eh. i do want her to like move on but I'm kind of with you in the sense that I'm not really convinced that they need to move on like this. And even like when they introduced him, I kind of hoped that he would stay really bristly so that this wouldn't happen. But they've softened him quite a bit since his first couple of appearances. So I'm not particularly excited about that. Um, Even if I did like this episode overall and was actually really stressed out by the episode because... And a laptop falling and then getting covered in orange, orange juice, juice. Is, is just, like, a nightmare. Like, yeah. I, I was screaming at the television when that happened because it's just like, no! Because, I mean, you just, you, you, you think about that constantly when you're a writer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, listeners, and if you don't know, if you aren't a podcaster or a writer, we cause, like, saving again and backing up again. And uh, please, just start, computer. You can do it. I believe in you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> constantly so yeah I've, we were 
I'm sure both right there with Jane when that happened. Um, I'm just like the number one takeaway for me with this episode, uh, besides liking what, you know, that they are thawing things just a little bit without changing the characters too much between Zoe and, uh, and Rahelia's mom, uh, is I'm just excited. They're giving Alba a storyline of some sort, not this week, but it's coming. And that is exciting. That is exciting. So hopefully we'll really dig into that next week. Yeah. Any final thoughts on, on Jane the Virgin or, or, where they're going next, Mutter and Petra and Michael no, and everything. I, I I'm thinking I'm like approaching like mass, like mass plot with the show a little bit. Mm-hmm. I maybe need to like to scale back some stuff. Even though like I kind of enjoy all of it, I don't need all of it every week. Okay. And I think that's where I'm kind of coming at it from. Is like I understand that generic from from a genre standpoint we kind of need it every week but i'm also not entirely convinced i want it every week Mm -hmm. fair enough fair enough well then what wins your week in comedy um i'm gonna give it to the grinder um with elephant uh with grinder v grinder um just really funny really meta and i think people just kind of forgot how really broadly funny timothy elephant could be after justified and so this was a really nice return to form for that what what one your week? Uh, well, I think I need to give some love to the Gallivant finale, but if, if I, can, I think if I'm really being honest, it's probably Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or Fresh <laughs> Off the Boat. Um, but I'm going to give some love to Gallivant because I don't know when I'll have another opportunity. So Gallivant wins the week in comedy for me. Now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. put myself first for him then by definition aren't i putting myself second don't think about it too hard too too hard don't think about it too hard too too hard it's a wormhole it's a mobius strip it's snake eats tail it's the infinity sign get a tattoo of the infinity sign on your lower back just for yourself but i can't see my lower back also can we go back to the fake eyelid is that a thing now yes put yourself That was uh, Just For Yourself from this week's episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So glad to have musicals back every week to help with the music selection here on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, This week in genre and drama, we're going to kick things off with talking a bit about the X-Files. Mulder Mulder and Scully meet the Monster before dipping in with Shannara Chronicles again briefly uh, with PyCon. And then we'll do our our superhero lineup of Flash, Fastlane, Arrow, Unchained, and DC's Legend of Tomorrow, Blood Ties, before I talk a little horse and Pete episode one and then we dive in with our heavies of the week American Crime season two episode five The Good Wife judged and we'll finish things out with American Crime Story The People versus OJ Simpson from the ashes of tragedy that is a lot of words that is a lengthy title we'll yeah. get back to that but first way too long <laughs> a, a long title that I really enjoyed The X-Files Mulder and Scully meet the Werewolf monster I've been seeing the praises of this episode since I saw it uh, yeah did I overhype this for you what did you think no, um, I watched this episode last weekend before it aired, so I was, like, set. And, no, because I was already, like, really hyped up about it, because it was Darren Morgan coming back to the X-Files. Um, no, I really loved this episode on a number of levels, but more than anything, I just loved the fact that this was an X-Files episode that basically took the twist from every 
Twilight Zone Outer Limits episode in which the moral of the story was the monster is us and just literalized that in a really delightful way that I just couldn't get over. And um, even if I think the explanation of it kind of went like a little too long, um, I just still thought it was a really funny episode. I thought it was a really smart, clever episode that more or less justified bringing the show back for six episodes, regardless of what the next three episodes bring. It was worth it just for Mulder and Scully to meet the were monster. Yeah, it was. It was just a really great episode. What did you? You've been hyping it up, but now that you can, we can actually talk about it. What yeah. did you like about this episode? I just love how Darren Morgan it is. The tone of it, like as soon as it's, you know, you get that comfortable feeling of, yep, this is a Morgan episode. Just the pacing yeah. of it and the the character voices, which are just that slightly, di- you know, bit different. How Morgan writes them versus the other characters, or you know, when one when he finds when Mulder finds the the secret peepholes all throughout the place, it's like you kind of expect that when you're staying in a place like this, right. like <laughs> like that kind of point of view. I, I thought was was really fun, and um, and then I mean, we got to talk about how amazing Reese Darby is. Just having really great. It was a really strong performance, anyways. But just being like, it's got to be an Australian guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, just the accent did so much to help the, that long monologue that he has. And yes. at least for me, I thought it was really fun. And it just kind of gave it a slight otherness and extra level of sort of like the associations culturally that we have, uh, or at least that I have. A lot of Americans, I think, have with uh, the, hearing an Australian accent, especially right. in the Kolchak outfit. Right, that was what I was going to say. He's dressed in the Kolchak outfit. He's for trustworthy no reason whatsoever, but yeah. it's great. It's awesome. <laughs> so I, I just think that really brought it all together in such a nice way. I liked all the the shout outs and the um, references for the most part. Um, yeah. It was distracting to me, I must say, to have to have the Kim Manners gravestone featured so prominently and for such a long period of time. I thought it was right. great that they had it, but it was just, distra- I mean, cause for those who don't know, Kim Manners directed like 50 episodes of the X-Files. He directed a lot of supernatural. He's a very uh, well-respected and much beloved, at least on the sets that he worked on from what's filtered out to the mainstream. Um, apparently very loved uh, director in television um, who passed away pretty recently on you know just the last like year or two i think uh but um the other headstone actually belonged to another x-files crew member that died as well yes but that one we see and then we are focusing on the characters because we're not focusing on on that but having the name right there right next to duchovny's like face as he's sitting down for me was uh, was a little distracting but i'm still glad that they that they did that if you know i think the setting yeah. of, a, of a cemetery worked really well and, and everything um that was the only one like, it didn't even bother me to hear the x-files theme <laughs> as the the ringtone what did you think about all that stuff um, I really enjoyed it. I think my biggest takeaway from it was um, Scully acknowledging that she's immortal, and now I'm going to treat that as canon. Officially. She'll never die. Yeah, no, officially. She's immortal, she can't die, and the idea of Scully being immortal just makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> as it should. What do you think right. of Kamel Nanjani? Um... I thought it was. I thought it was fine. Um, he. I thought he like didn't have like as much to do as I was expecting him to have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I I enjoyed him just by getting really frustrated with his job and wanting to quit, mm-hmm. and then like still having the job anyway. Um, and I think what I like most is that I think that anyone else in that role, that little bit at the end where nobody cares about his motivations, yeah. I thought he sold that disappointment that no one wanted to hear about that really, really well. Yeah, absolutely. That that felt like a really good match of Nanjiani yeah. with Morgan. Um, and of course, yeah. if you anyone doesn't listen to the X-Files Files, which is Nanjiani's podcast, uh, Darren Morgan came on and got to know him through that and then wrote the part for him. For the, in this yeah. episode um and and that but i've got this i've got my evil monologue i've been rehearsing it <laughs> like i thought that worked really well at first it was a little distracting for me um mm-hmm. because it, it felt and then who knows what order they actually filmed the scenes in but it sort of for me it felt like we were kind of settling into that performance and in that character at first um but then after the first couple of scenes it worked better for me so i don't know if it's just tone or the writing or some part of it was a little distracting at first, or maybe just sure. I've been looking forward to that for months because of the podcast. But um, yeah, but no, I, I agree. I, this episode makes the other five worthwhile as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I, I had a lot of fun with this episode. I mean, them talking about Mulder dealing with the internet. Come on, yeah, it's good no, stuff. It was, it was really great stuff. Less great stuff is the Shannara Chronicles. Are you still watching? I am still watching, and I'm constantly frustrated by how no one rolls inside checks anymore. Um, Seriously, right? It's not... Okay, for those who don't play D&D, let's, what, what do you mean by that, Noel? Um, in Dungeons & Dragons, you have a set of skills that your characters can be proficient in, have like bonuses in, and inside check is basically used to determine if someone's lying or hiding the truth or being obscure in some way, and you kind of want to call them out on it or like determine for yourself if an NBC is being obscure. And no one rolled inside checks when they went into the big, creepy, creepy former prison in a mountain. That's like genre playing 101. Or like, why is my former really good friend like calling me a liar? You know, right. like that took way too long. And and this is like my my DVR cut off last week right before it was revealed that um, the shapeshifter was taking over the the king's place. So okay. I was like, "Are you kidding me? They killed John Reese Davies. Why am I still watching this?" Uh, but yep. I did watch it, and then this episode, I'm like, are you kidding me? They're killing Manu Bennett, which they clearly aren't. But no, he'll, he'll be back. He'll be back. But um, again, it just kind of highlights my priorities, and this show's priorities are not the same priorities. So I would be very surprised if I keep up with Shannara Chronicles. Uh, see, but the thing is, they, they finally have gotten me frustrated to the point where I'm ready to give up on the show, but this is when they've finally gotten things going. They're finally right. on the mountain. So right. I, I, they're on a quest. They're in a dungeon. Things are going poorly. But can we just get the? Can we just get Malin Bennett to be with them again? Yeah. Like, can Gandalf show back up into the story? Like, we don't want to follow him when he's dealing with the council and everything, as we may have learned from certain Hobbit movies. We want to stick on the mountain and watch that adventure, um, but we want him to be there. So, uh, again, just the parts of the show that work and the parts of the show that I don't care about and that it's people doing stupid things and being stupid. Um, yeah. yeah, there's too much of the one and not enough of the other for me. Yeah, and I think the other problem that I have, especially with all the Elven Court stuff, is I do not care that he's a disgruntled prince at all. 
I, I negative care. At all. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's really difficult to care about another disgruntled son prince storyline at this point. I should be the king. It's like, you, Yay! yeah, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm only, like, mostly the most privileged person in the entire country. I want to be the absolutely most privileged person right. in this country. So now watching him be manipulated by a shapeshifter, I'm just like, oh, yeah, okay, nothing, nothing to see here. You're stupid, you deserve it, yeah. Right, so I'm, if you're gonna, like, start pausing on it, I will probably, like, push this to the weekends and catch up on something else instead, which will be a relief. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Watch London Spy and stop watching this. Like, <laughs> okay. just easy one-for-one replacement there. Uh, well, what about The Flash? How'd you feel about Fastlane? Um, this was an episode, and this was the first episode in a while, where I just went, I don't know why the metahuman is here this week. Um, Mm -hmm. because there was really no point for Tar Pit to be here, apart from, like, needing to do certain things so that Iris and Wally can, like, bond, basically. Um, but there was no reason for the metahuman to be here, because the rest of the plots were really, really good this week. I mean, you had Harry coming clean about betraying everyone, and Barry finally stepping up and being, like, really leadery about it and being like, no, we've all done this. We've all done this already once. We shouldn't be getting angry at this guy for doing the same exact thing. We should be helping him. And I thought that was just a really great Barry Allen moment because so much of the show is about other people giving Barry the pep talk to make him better. And I just went, run, Barry. Yeah, exactly. Right. And Barry is... Part of this is just, like, comic book stuff, and but the Flash is always kind of, like, the glue that holds groups together because he's good. And he's not good in that cornball, annoying way that Superman can be kind of depicted as being. He's just, he's just a good guy. Yeah, he's got a and, good heart. Right. And so being able to see that finally start to come out for Barry Allen on The Flash was just such a great thing for me. And I loved the Wests uh, continuing to kind of work through their family relationship a lot. And I think um, Lonsdale, who's playing Wally, is just fantastic. He does a lot of really quick emotional changes really, really well. Mm-hmm. And I've really been enjoying. They found, they really cast that character really, really well. And I'm very excited to see it continue. How, how did you feel about uh, Fastlane? Oh, I mean, I agree. Uh, the the tarpon stuff didn't care about. Uh, yeah, it was just sort of there. Um, the the thing I would point to actually is is Iris. I really like that they let her take such a strong role in this and be like, yeah, dude, this is not my father. This is not what he needs to hear. And people die doing this. Dra- it's not just like it's an exciting new character trait for our. You know, he's a rebel. No, this is a dangerous, bad thing that could get this person who we've just found out about killed. So I like the seriousness with which she treated that. I like how they folded that into uh, the speed issue. I, th- I thought it was well-constructed for with on all that side of things, um, and I didn't care about the the tar. Um, but I did like that, I mean, to wrap up Flash, unless you have more thoughts, I did like that they keep referencing on Arrow this is why we don't let villains name themselves because that's terrible. Where is Cisco when you need him? Yeah, where is right. he? Overwatch. You don't like you like that name too much, Felicity. What did you think about Unchained? Um, I liked Unchained uh, way more than I liked AWOL last week. Um, mainly because AWOL just felt like a lot of peace moving. Like I said, this week had a lot of like forward momentum, but also stuff that could be paid off really quickly, which I was really excited about. Um. 
because we're hitting that lull of Arrow episodes where they can't really do anything with the main season arc until episode 18. <laughs> so I need really good episodes or interesting episodes to keep me going until episode 18. And I like the idea of Felicity's dad being a bad guy, but not like Damien Dark bad guy, which is what I predicted he was going to be at the end of season three, because we all kind of thought that was yeah, how this we, was going yeah, to go. Yeah. And so, no, I, I like... I like that they managed to make... I think the best thing that worked about this episode was the fact that they actually had a victim this week in Roy. Um, Because so much of what happens on Arrow now doesn't have a victim. It just has a bad guy trying to destroy something or do something to the city. And that's gotten really boring and really repetitive. So now that there's a victim initially that they kind of end up having to save and help and then transition to stop them from destroying the city was a really nice change of pace. And I like that it was Roy. Um, I don't care about um, the civil war within the League of Assassins. And I also do not care that we are once again about to kill Thea, but someone from Nanda Parbat has a way to save her, provided Oliver does something for them. I was just like, I've been here already. And Nessa, why do you need Oliver to kill Malcolm? Can't you do that yourself? Shouldn't you do that yourself? (laughs) How did you feel about Unchained? Uh, yeah, you mentioned all this stuff, and what you didn't mention is the part of the show that I care about even less than the power struggles in another part about, and that's the flashbacks. I, like, have to remind oh, myself that ah. that part of the show exists, because I so don't care. Like, unless Constantine shows up and is saying funny things and has that awesome theme music underneath him, I don't care about the flashbacks. I've never cared about the flashbacks. It's been the weakest part of the show through its entire run with the the one exception being season two when they used it to really, truly develop character with with Manu Bennett's character of Slade. Uh, and not because of the stuff with Ollie, but because of the stuff with Slade. That's why those flashbacks worked for me. Um, but, oh my God, we don't care. Arrow writers, <laughs> we're, like, you don't need that as- aspect of the show. That is That is not the reason anyone is watching. And then that time could all be going to, like, Felicity or any of the other 10 characters you have. Yeah. Um, so anyways, there's the, that's my thing about the flashbacks. As for the stuff we were getting, I was disappointed that the one hacker that Felicity happens to go up against, who's somewhat of an equal, happens to be her father. It was a little precious. Well, this precious. is the second hacker. Don't forget her boyfriend, Cooper Selden. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. So I wasn't big on that. Um, I also... Uh, I, I the Felicity doesn't think she can do it because she's in a wheelchair, but she can. Uh, it was a little on the nose, but I liked. I did like the the pep talk that that Echo Callum's character gives, and the reason for it being that Felicity needs to take. She's trying to be two different people when she should just be the one person all the time. I think that actually made it a little fresher. Yes. Um, I don't care about the Thea stuff. Let's stop with the bloodlust. This is going to carry over oh. to my discussion on Legends of Tomorrow. I don't care about Fair. it either. Just like, again, have Constantine show up again and go, no consequences. We shouldn't have done it. We also shouldn't have done that storyline. No consequences. Just, yeah. Um, and I really need them to just kill Malcolm Merlin because I don't care about him yeah. at all. And then we can have, like, randomly, you know, we can have... Um, Nissa show up and she can run the League of Shadows and she can be mysterious and badass and sometimes with them and sometimes against them. Yeah. And I'm going to be way more believe I will believe that way more than I will what they keep doing with Malcolm. So that's where I'm at with all those different things. 
I'm not in disagreement with anything that you just said regarding a lot of this, though I care a lot more about the Thea stuff than you do, but I mm-hmm. also just really like Thea a whole lot. So I think that's making a difference. I like Thea, yeah. but I just don't... And, and I do actually think they've done... They've really improved her as, and made her much more interesting as a character in the past couple seasons as compared to yeah. where she started. Um, yes. I just... I, all of her stuff with Malcolm, I really don't care about because I, I yeah. have such negative associations with Malcolm. Uh, he should have yeah. been dead a long time ago. Uh, he brainwashed her into killing one of her friends and yet somehow is still in their lives. Uh, I'm sorry. That doesn't... Well, who else is going to deliver so much exposition? Oh, God. Yeah. Like, they're making me not like John Barrowman and shame on them. That shouldn't yeah, be possible. It's, it's been a really impressive feat how they've made John Barrowman not charismatic. Yeah. That takes some doing. Because yeah. the guy is just like charisma in a person suit. Uh, not yeah. quite Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Well, just slightly different, different kind flavor. of charisma, different kind of charisma, but, um, yeah. but let, let's move things over to legends of tomorrow. Um, because the, I was having so much fun with all the Sarah stuff until mm-hmm. they had to remember, no, she's dark and angsty. She can't just have her be awesome in seventies. Fabulous. She has to also be angsty. What, what did you, did that bother you or were you more down with that? Um, I was kind of confused by it, mainly because Arrow just the previous night had told me, well, Sarah's fine. Constantine made her whole. And then I'm just like, I still have this bloodlust, Rip. And I'm just like, wait, but but the other show just... But they just said, yeah. But you just said, and I get it. Like, they don't know for sure. I mean, they haven't really talked, they never really talked to Sarah after they resurrected her. (laughs) But it was just like, but you just said, and I'm doing this thing where I'm pointing in two different directions with my arms crossed right and now. And we listeners. know the writers talk to each other, too. Right. Like the well, writing I mean, rooms. Mark, yeah. Mark Guggenheim is, like, running Arrow and, like, kind of supervises in a very broad way Legends of Tomorrow. So it's just like, there's overlap here. Um, So that aside... I enjoyed Rip and Sarah going undercover a whole lot because that's what the show's going to do really well. They started doing it last week, and they continued it this week. I loved the slow-mo walk into the bank with uh, Fight the Power playing. It was just a lot of fun, and that's what I want from this show is just a lot of fun. Like you said, we don't necessarily need dark brooding type stuff because the entire premise of the show was just so fun. So even when we have something like Ray flying into Kendra's bloodstream to destroy dagger shards, which is fun, it gets marred down by the fact that I have to sit through yet another character having a crisis of confidence and another character pepping them up. It's like, we know it's going to work. We know you're going to figure, you know, you're, you're yeah. going to overcome it and you're going to try again. And then you're going to like, we already know what all of these beats are. And for yes. every part of this episode, we know what all of the beats are, I would say. Yeah. Um, so you got to make it fun in the process. Yeah. And with Captain Cold and Heat, heat uh, Vision, Heat Ray, whatever. With the, heat with that, Wave and Heat Jax, Wave yeah. and Jax, yeah. They made it fun enough. Yeah. Uh, but with, with yeah. those two, the only fun part for me is that I, I was disappointed that they made the whole I don't remember you thing a ruse. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, well. I, I guess it works. But so then I was happy when they revealed that, no, he really doesn't. He really doesn't. Because Stein's a jerk. Him. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, haven't we all had that moment where you're like, this is the teacher that meant so much to me. It was really influential in my life. That was one side of that relationship. The other one yeah. was nowhere near as, <laughs> as yeah. influential. Yeah, I, so I think that really works. Um, but yeah, embrace fun, Legends yeah. of Tomorrow. That's what you do best. You do not do angst well. They, they, they really, they don't. Right, and I think that's going to be a hang-up for them because so much of, like, 
Sarah's stuff can be kind of angsty, but God, everything Kendra's going to do from here on out is just going to be really tragic. It's it was just bad. It was yeah. just what like the the performance and the writing and the no in you know, the coma or whatever that she was in it was just it was just bad. Yeah, it was rough. It was really really rough, and I wasn't. I wasn't feeling it at all. Um, I enjoyed some of the time loop stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, Cold is basically responsible for himself being cold. Mm-hmm. Telling his younger self to not let anyone hurt him here or here. His heart or his, his, heart or his head. And then, like, Rip serves up his family on a silver platter now. <laughs> Yay. Way to go, Rip. <laughs> well done. For a time traveler who's supposed to be an expert in this stuff, you're pretty stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah, I also don't. I also need them to stop ending each episode with saying, "Now we're for realsies a team, guys. We weren't right. before, and that's yeah. why we failed. But now we got to right. figure and it out." This was really. This was actually, I think, the biggest annoyance was the fact that Rip got on to them for going after Vandal and not having a plan last week, and then he's just like, "I'm gonna go after Vandal Savage by myself this week, guys." And it's just like, yeah. but. You guys just had a big speech about doing things together. Oh, we're going to do this again. Please don't do this again. For the love of Milton Burrow, please don't do this again. Yeah. Well, what should happen again is more Horace and Pete. That's our next show, uh, which for those who don't know, Louis C.K. has a web series that nobody knew about that he released the first episode of at his website for $5. Um, and this, it stars uh, him himself and Steve Buscemi as two brothers – uh, and who, who own a bar, who run a bar that have, has been run by horses and Pete's in the same family for a hundred years. Um, and this, the first episode came out last week. As you guys listen to this, the second episode should already be out. Uh, it's coming out on Saturday, uh, February 6th. And who knows when the next, it'll keep coming out, but episodes are going to be, I think $3 now. Um, uh, but this was really interesting because it basically, it's an hour long thing. It mostly just feels like a play, and, and the way that people were talking about it, I thought it was going to be a comedy, but it's much more of a drama. There's some interesting, because it's set at the bar, so they actually do have some political conversations and debates and perspective point of view kind of stuff um, back and forth with the different characters there, uh, which was neat. But the um, the character stuff really kicks in, in towards the end of it, and it's, I'm not, I don't think it's great, but I think it's mm-hmm. interesting. And I'm all for experimentation from from CK, and it's got a very talented cast here. There's also uh, Alan Alda and Edie Falco, and then people recognize some of the um, supporting kind of figures who who turn up um, at the bar. But um, yeah, I thought I thought it was interesting, and I look forward to episode two. It, it felt like it could have just been a standalone, but mm-hmm. it's. We're getting more episodes uh, with the same in, called episode two in the same world. So uh, I will have more, I guess, on that next week. Do you think you're going to make any time for Horse and Pete? Or, I mean, it's it's not available to watch with commercials or to watch for free anywhere. You have to buy it. So is that putting it out of your, your interest? A little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've described something that I might be vaguely interested in. So maybe I'll lay down the $5 and watch the first episode this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure if I'll do. It'll depend on the strength of what I watch if yeah. I'm going to do any more. CK is just really hit or miss for me, just like as a whole. So whether or not this works is going to be really up in the air. Yeah, and it again, it just it feels very. Um, it's there's lots of extra time. 
and it's not going for jokes at all. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of feels like you're watching a play with the right. way that it's filmed and, and staged and, um, and it's very comfortable just having there be space and just kind of leaving the eyes with like a, huh, why am I watching this? Is there like, cause it doesn't follow a traditional necessarily narrative of every scene builds on the one before it kind of thing. So if you do watch it, I look forward to your thoughts. If not, okay. I look forward to seeing what I think of the next episode. Let's move on to American crime season two, episode five, which had the lovely, uh, interpretive dance scene, um, yes. as well as a lot of other developments. What did you think? Um, I really liked this episode, but that shouldn't be a surprise. This season has just been really impressive. Um, I think even progressively more so than last season was, um, if I can be so bold. Um, but it was just a really interesting look at the fallout of everything coming to light, um, from the previous episode between the... He wanted it, but I didn't want it like that. And was it consensual? And just all these really interesting questions that we touched on last week about hoping the show was going to explore and the show very much explored and like wanted to start the ball rolling on how much of this is going to happen. And I'm I'm curious about if we're how much of this particular storyline we're going to stick with now that the police are no longer involved. Um, and where the show goes from here after that uh, former parent showed up to be like, someone needs to do something about this school. And where the show goes from here, basically, is a kind of a question I'm wondering, but it's also not a question I'm worried about, which is a good, which is a good place to be. Because normally when you're asking, well, where does the show go from here, it's not a good sign. When you're asking it with something like American Crime, it is a good sign, I think. And just aesthetically, the show continues to excel. Um, Miles McNutt, um, who writes at the AV Club, rightly pointed out that the sequence with um, Taylor in the bathroom, which is really cut up, where one of his class schoolmates comes in and they kind of maybe share a moment, is like cut up in a lot of ways. And then when he's thinking about it later, we get some of those missing scenes. And it's just, well, missing frames, rather. And it's a really great sequence, and it really demonstrates just how well put together this show is, just on every single level, from aesthetics to sound to just narratively and getting us inside the character's head. It's a really impressive show. Um, what did you think about it? Tell, tell me what you thought about the interpretive dance, because I wasn't quite sure what to do with that sequence a little bit in a lot of ways. And I couldn't just tell if I was tired or just I wasn't clicking in on it. Um, but so, yeah, tell me what you thought about. Tell me what you thought. Um, I liked it. I mean, I that I, you're talking to somebody who's watched the last several seasons of So I Think You Can Dance, despite complaining about the show every week, just because <laughs> I, I enjoy dance. Oh, speaking of, So You Think You Can Dance Juniors? Are you kidding me? Not Yeah, that sounds like a terrible idea. It's terrible. Anyways. I don't um, even watch the show, and it sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but getting back to American crime, I, I really liked I, the sequence, but the trouble I was having with it is that, you know, this is something that has been choreographed for months or like, it, you know, cause these are school kids. So theoretically it's something that's a routine that they've been working on. Well, maybe not months, but definitely probably weeks, you know, right. to get, it's been something that's been in the works since at least the first episode when she was watching the practice. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like it was their first rehearsal. So clearly this can't be choreography that's reacting to what's happened. Happening. And if they're trying to connect, like, I was just enjoy- I was tr- looking at it as 
you know, a discussion of sort of connection. And clearly with the way it ends, there's some like I othering and isolation and like, you know, like there's themes, themes you can draw upon, but we, we can't really necessarily connect that to the character of the choreographer or teacher, because if the, if this was a response to anything that had been happening, they would have had a line of dialogue about it. Um, so, so I think as a standalone sequence, it's interesting and it's, and it's look very, it was very well danced and everything. And, I, I was trying to read the reactions of the people in the audience, but that 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 didn't really that work didn't for help. me. Yeah. No, uh, so that was just kind of distracting. And so because I can't necessarily extrapolate how the even the teacher feels about this from the dance, I just was kind of enjoying that as its own thing. Okay. Um, and I feel like I'm getting a sense of what the writers how the writers feel about this from every other part of the show. So yeah, it was kind of. It was cool, but it didn't feel like it was like a revelatory moment for me. Um, as for the other parts of the episode, uh, I just love the way it just straight up says, yeah, I went there to have sex, but I can't possibly have consented because I was drugged and I was clearly drugged. And, yeah. and and I also like that the other side of that, the, of that interrogation scene, like when we go to the interview, the other guy the the person who is the accused rapist he's saying that if he was had anything it was later so then you're as you're watching this you're trying to figure out is there a way that they can both be true like you want them to both somehow be telling the truth um and it doesn't probably work that way but i like that they do not that they start out by presenting such a straightforward no obviously it doesn't i don't care what the emails say this is this is wrong. This can't possibly be consent. This is definitely rape. Um, to then the other guy, the other part of it saying, well, if that happened, it was not when I was there. Yeah. That was later. So I, I like that they have such, they, they aren't casting one of them as shifty or as ashamed and trying to hide. And I think it would have been too easy to go that way. So I like that they yeah. didn't. And it also seems like what's we ha- we're going to look forward to, or at least what I'm going to look forward to, uh, in uh, for, as what's maybe coming next is Timothy Hutton getting into things because he's that's true, yeah. He had a smaller role, so if he does, I I liked the reaction to you know <laughs> that <laughs> that bitch Felicity Huffman was trying to get me to get you to you know I like yeah. that, and and if we actually get more examination from those two characters, I think that could lead to a lot of interesting things. Yeah. Um. So yeah. That's where I'm at with it. But I thought it was another really well-done episode, and I'm fully on board with the season. Um, I think it's way better than the first season, but then again, I didn't like the first season. So Okay, well, there you go. You know. Um, the only other thing I'll have to say is that I love ABC standards and practices a ton. Because this is a show where you can say come, but you can't say shit. Oh, God. It was just super distracting. They just, like, cut out that, like... Yes, which I'm actually... Stylistically, it works, given everything... I, I'm not a fan of, like, the blackout for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Just just mute the sound and yeah. just do that. Because the, having the visual part of it, too, was really jarring, and it took me out of it a lot. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait, is then has this been edited? Like, who was doing that? You know, like, yeah. by adding a visual component, it takes me out of it more and makes me think of who's composing the narrative that we're seeing and if we're yeah. supposed to be thinking about that, which I don't know that we are. I don't think we're supposed to be, no. Yeah. I think 
I, but I also think that there's maybe poten- a potential for a weird meta commentary there, but I'm not quite sure what that is yet. Yeah, fair enough. Well, let's move on to our next show, and that's The Good Wife, Judged. Um, I, th- I think I'm supposed to have a lot of thoughts on this, but mostly <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm, I was super underwhelmed by this episode. Uh, I was not impressed at all. Actually, I was the opposite of that, but I don't, maybe you liked it. So what did you think? Um, well, I think that the big thing to that is like selling so much of this is that the voicemail aspect of the story feels like such a contrivance that it's kind of poisoning even good things that come out of it. So Alicia and Luca's discussion and Alicia's just, breakdown and borderline apparently was supposed to be interpreted as vaguely suicidal i think um is really great and i think it's a it's a really great moment we know margulies can do this and she does it really well but i think that that scene and the rest of the episode is just really a kush jumbo showcase because she's fantastic in this episode and this is her Emmy submission episode because she's giving a lot of really subtle reaction to a lot of things. And her response to Alicia just breaking down, the way that she responds from a dialogue standpoint with, I don't have many friends, I want you to be my friend, and I want to be your friend, is just really great and powerful. But at the same time, I watch it and I go, well, this is great. If only Kalinda were here for this. And then I get really sad. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of the episode was, like, kind of okay. I mean, we're playing musical chairs because Alicia has Alicia and Luke and now face a malpractice lawsuit. So they're going to have to go back to Flockhawk, August Lee. And I'm just like, oh, okay, we're back here again. Yay! I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we won't have to feel... we. I mean, it's like... It's too late for them to do this, in my opinion, just because it's just like, I had a half a season of you guys just having segregated characters and segregated stories, and now you want to potentially end your series with this coming back for, like, another ten episodes? I'm just like, no, it's too late, guys. It's too late. Yeah, I, just too much of this episode felt contrived, or not contrived, but constructed, very actively. Active is a correct word. Yeah, and I'm glad that you praise uh, Kushumbo because I think she was fantastic in, in this stuff. But I was not impressed with Margulies mm-hmm. like at all. I just it felt so mannered what she was doing. And I think I, for me, these episodes really were hampered by airing so far apart. If it yeah. had been three weeks in a row, then the weight of that initial Eli uh, scene, confession sure. scene, would still be with us. But yeah. that one aired in December. It is now February. That's, I'm sorry, any weight of, of her that I was, I'm supposed to still be feeling this, like, depression and angst in her, but I just don't. And so everything just felt so very actorly. We're like, now we're not going to react to anything. And then after this conversation, we're going to laugh all the time. Because remember how she said that she likes to laugh? And it just felt very, very mannered, very constructed, and very um, also just moving pieces into place so that we can have the end of the season they decided they want, or the end of the series they've decided they wanted. So it's like, we need to get a way to have her go back to the law firm so that we can end with her at the law firm before she decides to run again. Now that Eli and her are good. Um, It's just, it all is too much. And And part of that again, in the same vein is 
I've, yay, they have Alicia and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, uh, like, starting their thing. But having that start in an elevator just feels, like, too, like, specific of a reference point. It's like, hey, guys, she's moving on from Will because she's kissing the guy, but she's kissing him in the elevator. But that's where everyone kisses and does, like, really private. It's like the elevator is, like, the only private space in The Good Wife. Yeah, it's- but... But what I'm like, that's there's a lot of different ways they could have done that. They want it to be a clear callback to everything they yeah. did with Will, and it just felt like it's trying way too hard. Right. I also, this is the first episode that I wasn't feeling the chemistry between them, and maybe that's just yeah, me. if everything felt, I think everything felt a little off this week, yeah. And so, I mean, just even from a writer perspective, like Alicia isn't sure if she likes her kids anymore. Why? What, like, Grace is amazing, I, she was just amazing right. last week. Right, and I just went, that is not Alicia. Well, and maybe that's supposed to be the point of it. Possibly. Absolutely. Yeah, it's still really weird. And I think the big thing is, like, they've had this, they've had this big moment where Alicia, like, who's, like, really constructed as a character, but also really constructed as, like, a human being, just lets it all fall apart. And then it's just like, okay... You've had this moment. This is a this is a big cathartic moment. What are you going to do about it now? Mm-hmm. So it's just like next week. It's just like all right. What are you going to do about your marriage? Because you're not involved in this. You don't want to be involved in this. What are you going to do about it? Anything at all, Bueller, Bueller. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's going to be like the big thing that I'm looking for. And whether or not I keep reviewing the show is still up in the air, but is going to be like how much follow-through this moment has, if any. And I'm not predicting a whole lot. And the only other thing I will say is that Rosemary Rodriguez continues to direct the shit out of this show whenever she's on. Um, The canted angles for when Alicia's, like, drinking, and she even violates the 180-degree rule, Mm -hmm. where a character is on one side of the frame, but shouldn't transition to the other side of the frame in the next shot, but that happens, and it's just... It's really well executed, and she just continues to do really interesting things with the show's aesthetics. And I can't say enough nice things about how this episode looked. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the episode is just kind of... This is the kind of episode that I should eat up, that I should yes. love. Uh, on paper, I love this episode, but... Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad it's not just me. Um, yeah. But uh, not just me, I have to, we're going to see where we're at, because I've heard from many people who love this next episode, but some who are underwhelmed, and I don't know where you fall yet, because I haven't been stalking you on Twitter, like I should, to know your thoughts on this. American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, From the Ashes of Tragedy, this is another one I was singing the praises of. Uh, what did you think? Did it work for you, the way that it did for me? This show's fantastic. Isn't it so good? It's fantastic. I love I'm so excited, listeners. <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I, I, I really loved all of this. I mean, some of it was just like, I refused to like f- completely buy into people calling him the juice constantly because it's just so many times. Um, but at the same time, just the, it's the, it felt like the most Murphy thing in a show that, I mean, Murphy's the brand, thank God. And so it's, it's just so interesting. And I think my favorite thing about it is just the sheer variety of actor choices being made in this show. And none of them feel like they're existing in disharmony. 
is my favorite thing about this show because I mean you've got Travolta doing this really delicate scenery chewing as James Poniewozak at the New York Times described him as a vain wax doll which is a terrific description for his Shapiro and it's just it's a really delicate scene chewing that I feel is very surface and very perfect for a Hollywood lawyer so I'm loving it. That's the number one thing I've seen other people respond to negatively that I'm just like, wait, right. are, you, are you watching it? Because I, I think it's fantastic. And I think it works really well for the character. But I've seen a lot of people are like, it's too mannered. It's too over the top. It's too cartoonish. But for me, it really works. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's, like I said, I think it's like the epitome of like a slick Hollywood lawyer caricature. Mm-hmm. And I like that about that character. And I like how this is being presented. And I think Travolta is doing a great job with it. Mm-hmm. But I also just like how, like, David Schwimmer is playing Rob Kardashian as just like this regular sad sack surrounded by all these much more interesting people. And I can't not, I can't not watch him. Because it's just so interesting. His energy is completely different from what everyone else is doing on the screen around him. Because, I mean, he's surrounded by really big performances. And he just kind of keeps receding. Which is just really, really interesting. Really fascinating. But it still feels a part of the show. And I I just really, really liked it. Um, The whole, the Broncos gone line at the end (laughs) was a little much. But that was clearly for us. As audience, because I'm I'm not convinced that anyone actually went. The Broncos gone, dun dun dun. <laughs> but yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but now that you can talk freely about it, tell me what you enjoyed. I mean, we haven't even talked about Sarah Paulson as Clark, and that performance is just powerhouse. Oh, it's already. so good. Yeah, I, I love the way that you're talking about the different types of performances we're getting from the different actors and. It's just the different types of characters or even genres that they should be yes. in. And I think like, I think that's an excellent point. I hadn't thought of that, but I think it's a big part of what makes this work. When you talk about Schwimmer, I think that role is so essential because it gives you somebody that you can root for in the OJ camp. Yes. Because he honestly believes his friend couldn't have done this. Yeah. And you need somebody... Because Shapiro doesn't think that. Shapiro uh, doesn't care either. Well, yes, there's that. <laughs> but I think you need somebody in that camp so that when you're in, that, that you can follow, that you can be, at least root for, you know, Robert, if you don't root for the Jews, depending on how you feel. I just said the Jews non, uh, non-ironically. What yes, happened? you did. <laughs> What's happened? Uh, but you need, I think. Obviously, we know how Kate feels. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need an inroad over there. So to, regardless yeah. of how you feel about OJ, and I think the way the show is so far in this first episode and in the other ones I've seen, I think they handle, did he do it or did he not do it? I, for me, they handle it fine. I think they have a distinct point of view. Uh, but I think they're also respectful of other points of view to, and enough yeah. I don't know. We'll, we talk about that more when we get further along. But uh, but then you contrast that with Marsha Clark being just this much more, you know, either she starts out very, nat- like, naturalistic, just, like, normal kind of mom, and then she goes into hard-ass, you know, Jack McCoy mode. And I think that that really, I mean, it's very fitting for our, our Law & Order week here. But um, yeah. I think that, that just, again, that really works. And I had never thought of these different people as people, I was too young at the time. I certainly right. wasn't thinking, and there was too much craziness about it. So to get some perspective of time to see what the, you know, to have that different perspective on 
the situation and everything playing into it from from race and gender and celebrity and the news culture all that coming together i think they like it's just really really they could have done this so poorly and instead it's a slam dunk yeah or a touchdown so that we stay in the football there you go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, it's really, really great. Um, I'm very excited to see more episodes because I can watch more episodes in advance now. And um, no, I'm just, I'm really excited to see where the show goes. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's really compelling stuff. And if you were like hesitant about watching it because of the subject matter or anything like that, I think this is a show that is really invested in exploring this case from a number of different angles about what it meant then and what it still means now, not just as like a Kardashian Mm -hmm. origin story. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Can we talk about that briefly? Sure. Absolutely. Let's talk about that because I don't know a whole lot about the Kardashians. So this will be fun. I don't care about the Kardashians at all. Like I don't, the most I've seen of any of the Kardashians is that I watched, uh, I am Kate. Okay. And that's it. Like, that was my first time ever seeing Kris Jenner in anything. Right. Uh, and just quick mention, uh, how uh, hilarious and amazing is that little scene we get with Summer Blair and Connie Britton of the fabulousness. It's the best because Connie, Con- Connie Britton's not moving her face at all. And Summer Blair is the most on-the-nose casting, mm-hmm. looks-wise, on the entire show, aside from, like, the makeup work and that they're doing with Courtney B. Vance to make him look like Cochran. Yeah. But and, it, I mean, it's just, she's so Kris Jenner slash Kardashian that it just, like, I went, oh, well, of course you cast Summer Blair for this. There was no one else. Yeah. And she's good. She's And, and she's good. And she's good. But um, because I don't have any tie or I don't care about the Kardashians, I don't follow the Kardashians, the stuff that we get, like, um... You know, not in Kimmy's bedroom. Like, that kind of stuff. To me, it's just, that's his daughter. He doesn't want him to do this at all, but certainly not in his daughter's bedroom. I'm not seeing, oh, they just wanted to mention Kim Kardashian. Like, to me, that's not, it doesn't have to mean that. And and while I'm sure some of that is the case, I'm way less, and there's going to be a scene coming up you may not have seen yet that's very no, on the nose. I haven't watched anything from the past the first episode yeah there's a dinner scene with the kardashians that's very much on the nose but i like what we get here it was not distracting for me i wasn't like oh see they're obsessed with kim kardashian in this it just feels like it's filling out robert but that's for me i don't know what do you think i think it's fine i'm just like there's so much of like oj's involvement with the kardashians because i asked Corey about this who was on last week to talk about Miami vice with us because I was just like, I don't know anything about this, and can you fill me in? And he was just like, oh, yeah, absolutely, this, this, and this. And I was just like, oh, well, this makes sense why they're involved, because, I mean, there's this whole rumor about OJ's role in breaking up Rob and Chris, and the potential of parental lineage of, I think, Chloe Kardashian is OJ's daughter. Mm-hmm. There's, like, been longstanding rumors about this. And so, like, I mean, all of it kind of feeds into this And I think one of the key things to keep in mind, and, I mean, you can confirm when we get to this point, uh, but, I mean, when you talk about the show being about celebrity, I mean, this is establishing, in no small part, the groundwork for them to be famous. 
and how this court case is stretched out and its influence is stretched out enough that these folks were able to launch a massive television empire and celebrity empire in no small part because of this and their association with it. And I think that's just, I think that's really interesting just from a cultural standpoint, even if it's not a cultural standpoint that I am interested in, if that differentiation makes sense. Or just growing up with this circus being a fundamental forming formative experience. Yeah. Because it was such a big deal and stretched on for so long. Um, You could see how that would be a significant form formative event, I guess. Yeah. Um, We'll talk more about it as the weeks continue. And oh man, there's so much more Courtney B. Vance coming. And it's so I'm good. so excited. I'm so excited because I love I love Courtney B. Vance. Who doesn't love Courtney B. Vance? I'm just excited that you like it so much. I was worried you'd be like, meh, I thought it was fine. And then I'd be like, no. So I'm just glad <laughs> we can actually talk about it a bit. What wins your week in genre and drama? I mean, X-Files? I'm constantly? splitting the vote between um, The People versus O.J. Simpson and uh, The X-Files this okay. week. Yeah. yeah, with an honorable nod to American Crime, uh, but yeah. but yeah, no, that's don't make me pick. Don't make yeah. me pick. <laughs> Basically, don't make me pick between these two wildly divergent things that we decided to smush together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a few show notes here before we go into our Law & Order DVD shelf. You can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the, for the show. You can leave us a comment there. Uh, let us know what you thought about the week's TV. You can also email theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us up in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed, and we would appreciate any feedback you guys can give us there. Ratings or reviews would help the show. It's It's been a while, so it would be nice if maybe you could do that you can also find us on facebook you know you can like the page and and keep the conversation going over there or you can also find us both on twitter i am at the televerse and noel you are at noel rk you can find my writing up at the av club uh and uh currently i don't have anything going week to week for at least the immediate future uh noel what do you have going over at tv.com the Arrowverse, basically. <laughs> um, and then Good Wife, maybe for a, another week or two. And then yeah. I may just quit. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Go over to tv.com and, and see. You can go Sunday evening yeah. and or Monday morning and, and find out whether Noel's given up yet. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it'll happen next week. But after that, I'm, I, I make no promises. Fair enough. Well, now we will take a break and come back with Sarah D. Bunting and Mark Blankenship of Previously.TV and Extra Hot Great and many other places uh, to talk about, oh man, I'm so excited, to talk about Law and Order. We'll be right back after this. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories.
We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kozlik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week on the DVD shelf, I'm super excited, Noel, uh, and listeners, because this is a DVD shelf that we have wanted to do since you became the co-host, but I've been wanting to do for the entire run of the Televerse, the over four-year run of the Televerse, but nobody's ever wanted to talk about Law & Order. So I had to go poke our, our lovely guests and just invite them on specifically to talk about it because I feel like it's a show that doesn't get enough respect and doesn't get enough critical praise. So we're going to we're gonna take care of that today. And helping with this from TV and Extra Hot Great and many other places as well, uh, Mark Blakenship and returning to the podcast, Sarah DeBunting. Guys, welcome to the podcast and thank you for letting Noel and I talk Law & Order. Oh my God. Any time, literally any time. <laughs> every time? Night, fine. Any time, every time, all the time. Morning, noon, and night, snack time, break time, any time of day. Yes, I am ready to talk about Law & Order. 8 to 12% of my waking consciousness is dedicated to Law & Order, and it's been off the air since 2010. So that should tell you something about what my mind was like when it was still airing new episodes. <laughs> well, uh, for listeners of the Televerse who haven't checked out Extra Hot Great, um, who are fans of Law & Order, you guys did a Law & Order fantasy draft uh, that is delightful. Where And so people, go go check that out over at Extra Hot Great, Priestly.tv. Um, Alan Seppelwall came on, and you guys all did it, and it was a lot of fun. We are going to instead try to tackle a couple things. First of all, we will have to talk about several of the particularly memorable moments of the show. I'm looking at you, uh, Elizabeth Rome. But also, <laughs> I, I would love to get into with you guys why you think the show works the way that it does, what makes it Law & Order, and what makes the different eras of the show work or not work as well. Um, and, like, what is peak Law and & Order, and why doesn't it get the respect it deserves? And that's a lot to unpack, but who wants to start? I have some theories about the end of the show, and why it may have been perceived as no longer working, but that can be for later. So now Mark should talk about um, why it did work as well as it did for so long and should have kept going, right? Yes. I, I, why would it ever stop? Bold and the Beautiful was on for like 80 years. Why can't we still have this show? Anyway, and please, like I wouldn't give every single show in the Chicago Dick Wolf universe for one more season of regular Law & Order, because I would. Anyway, I've been thinking a lot about what made the show work for me, and I suspect because I am not that interesting that this is what made it work for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, I should say that unique. Uh, but it, it, obviously the conventional wisdom about the show is that you can pick it up at any point because the episodes are so often standalone mysteries that get solved within the course of the hour. And that is certainly how I got into the show, because I remember I was uh it was summertime and it used to be on A&E all the time mm -hmm. way back when. And it was the whenever it was on A&E, I would come home from a summer job and it would be on and I would make hot dogs and watch Law and Order while I ate them. That was just the thing I did. And there's something so satisfying about just having a one hour experience and then it's over. The narrative is completed. You can go about your day. And that sort of compression is very satisfying. Plus the fact that before you know what the conventions of the show are, the mysteries are good and interesting and the subjects are interesting and the points of view and the, the legal arguments are interesting. So it's not just that there is something that's complete in an hour because sitcoms are like that too, but also that in an hour you get 
something pretty complex and interesting to think about. But then I think the reason that the show lasted for so long, eventually, it, it's because along with that of the moment drop-in, drop-out satisfaction, you also get, if you're a long-time viewer, a deeper level of satisfaction because there really are a lot of things happening with the development of the characters underneath the week-to-week plot, but you just have to be a seasoned enough viewer to actually notice them. You, if you really pay attention, you can see the rise and fall of Ray Curtis's marriage, for instance, or whatever. And I think that the repeat viewing and the coming back, it's, there's some, it's something about the fact that the show does reward longtime viewers with that type of information. And ultimately, because as you start to become more aware of the formula and you start to know at which point the red herring witness shows up and which uh-huh. point the real witness shows up, those things become satisfying in a different way. Like, it's the satisfaction of watching a Rube Goldberg machine, Rube Goldberg machine actually work. And so I think that as a newcomer or a veteran, you can take joy in the craft of the show. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely agree that that's why um, it did work for so long. Uh, I also think it ran into trouble in later seasons, in my opinion. Um, there was some um not ideal casting which i guess we can talk <laughs> about later uh, in gently, a number gently said in a number of areas um but the show i think generally could withstand that because it did more or less know that it was a procedural stick to being a procedural and only bring in the personal lives in this um in this way that deepened the case and like that they didn't do their character work with character plot. They did their character work with procedural plot. Um, And as the show got into like season 18, 19, 20, first of all, they started doing more like here's this character at home brooding about something, which no one cares. And second of all, it did seem to me watching some of these later ones, which I never like watched again, that it's like every week there's something to do with a, te- a possible terrorist plot. And that that aspect of it really started to drag the show down. Um, and then you had some casting that wasn't totally working at the same time. And it, it did, it really felt like groundhog season at the end there that just like over and over again, there's Linus Roach with his baseball bat and his pointedly American accent talking about like battling the feds for jurisdiction over a terrorist case. And I am kind of tired of people talking about shows, classic shows and using the city as a character as like a plank and why it's good. Like, I, I don't think that's necessarily a full reason, but watching, having lived in this city for 20 years and watching the old ones and remembering what the old police cars looked like and how you could smoke inside and everyone did. I mean, that wasn't a good thing. It's just like, that's what it used to be like to live here. It actually was very hard and like physically dirty to live here. And that speaks to me as you know speaks to me as like a new yorker and someone who grew up like close to here but always assumed that i would live here as a grown-up and what does that physically look like what is the quality of light in new york but at the end i think they got away from 
I think they were feeling pressure to be more personal mm. in their portrayal of the characters. I think Sisto and Anthony Anderson were a poor fit with the show and each other. Anderson was fucking terrible. And also it really was like just over and over again, this preoccupation with where is the next 9-11 coming from, which I think is a, you know, a legitimate preoccupation for a person, but on a police procedural in New York city, it's like, there's other things happening. There's other murders that happen that are not related. Noel, what stands out to you? Well, what's always stood out to me um, about uh, law and order was in no small part, especially in the early going, but how the show steadily discovered its aesthetic and figured out what it wanted to look like. Um, the early seasons kind of have a, especially in the first season, have a very like cinema verite style to them. Especially the pilot. This pi- pilot is totally different from what the show looks like, even by like season four. And I think it's it's fa- it's really fascinating to watch the show develop as a product of television that spanned twenty years. And so when. Sarah's talking about preoccupation with terrorism as being well-trodden or overused. I'm seeing that, as as she alluded to, as being an example of the show trying to keep a pace with itself. Not with itself, but with the television landscape. That it was shifting away from cops and gangsters and just regular type of murders to something bigger and something more sensationalistic. And I think part of that is just, again, the shift in television landscape. And I think that's really what's the most interesting thing about Law and Order is that you can watch Law and Order and basically have a sense of what the United States cultural landscape looked like at the time in terms of what kind of crimes were being ripped from the headlines so we knew what kind of crimes were fodder for fodder for storytelling. We knew what kind of style of, say, acting or writing or political bent were popular enough to be treated on the show. And so it becomes like this time capsule of what the United States was concerned with for the for 20 years. And I think that's just really fascinating. And you don't get that with many shows today where they're like really just having to live in the moment or shows get canceled after about five seasons or shows come in with a plan. And when you come in with a plan, you can't really be about anything other than what you've already planned with this. You can be a microcosm basically of the United States. And I think that's really, really interesting. So I kind of like push back against this idea that season the latter seasons aren't particularly good. I think that they're really focused on what they think is both like network wise, what they wanted to keep up with television landscape wise, but also just what people were concerned with and thinking about. And yes, there were totally other crimes, but I think the kind of dramatization and more to the point, like finding that law and order type of soapbox for want of a better phrase and just working through those issues. Cause I, I, I still think memo from the dark side is one of the show's best episodes and just a really fascinating. Can you remind me what happens in that? That's the torture legality of torture episode where McCoy just goes off on the idea that torture yields anything and cutters oh, like, right. right. So I think that's just, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about the show is that it's just this 
survey, basically, of American society and culture and history in a 20-year span. And I think that's just fascinating. And another reason why this show should not be dismissed as, ugh, it's just a procedural. You can watch any episode. Yeah, you can watch any episode, but think about where you're getting a window into when you watch just any episode. They really weren't afraid to go there, like, in the earlier episodes in matters of race and police brutality. And sometimes I really do wish that the mothership were still on just because I do. I love it. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. But also because SVU, like, they try to rip almost any crime now from the headlines and try to torque it into the special victims unit. Like, they'll try to find some excuse to relate it. And I think Mothership would be better for that. And I definitely take your point that you do see this sort of like evolution of American like criminal and societal preoccupations, which is cool. And a lot of the episodes did work for me. It just started to seem repetitive and network note driven at the end more to me. That's such a great point about Law & Order is... such a time capsule and it reminds me of one of the things that i love about the show and this is it's helped me clarify why lenny briscoe is such a great character it's because lenny briscoe is the person who is commenting on the cultural concerns of america while the show itself is commenting on the criminal concerns because watching lenny briscoe get watching each season's new technology irritate Lenny Briscoe <laughs> is a delight. Like he, he, he goes from not understanding how to turn a computer on to not knowing what this internet is. And then the show's like constant anxiety about the evils of the internet is for oh, the like, graduate just, study. Hates yeah. it. It shows up, hates it on his last episode. Brilliant. We could do an entire podcast about law and order's fear of the internet. Oh. Yes. Yes, we could. As early as like 94, 95, there's an episode where, the, the, there's a teacher who's at a, at Hunt at whatever their fake college is, Hudson University, who's yeah. teaching that course the most on dangerous place on earth. <laughs> who's teaching that course on as cyber porn as literature? And <laughs> I don't know if you remember this one, but then it's like they get um, they make the guy pee himself in the station because they inti- they intimidate him because he writes all this porn. It's like that was '94, and they already told, were telling us that the internet was nothing but trouble. Yep. <laughs> Well, I think an important part of the show and of a character like Lenny that we haven't even touched on is, uh, well, I guess sort of tangentially, the fact that the show is shot in New York, which helps you capture, of course, just the visuals being on location. But more than that, it opens up this entire fantastic world of actors yeah. that can people your scene, that can be guy who's there for two lines, but is really, really good. And I think... That really dem- comes through and dem- is demonstrated in the cast of the show. The reason that a character like Lenny Briscoe is so amazing is that you have Jerry Orbach playing him, Broadway right. star Jerry Orbach. Um, I mean, and, and that's if you look at the cast of the show. Yes, every now and again, there's maybe someone we'd raise an eyebrow at, but Michael in, Imperioli. But in general, oh, in general, it's a really fantastic cast, and they're doing they're taking these scripts that are like we've said, very procedural, but they're they're doing the character development over that time within that. So so the script might not be giving us character, but the performers are. The performers are very interested in that. And so that's why you watch these episodes, you get a sense of of the character, and then you can jump into any Lenny episode, any uh, any McCoy episode, any of many of these very, uh, very interesting and very uh, indelible characters. And 
and understand where it fits within their journey on the show. But also, like you guys, you know, like we've been saying how that relates to the conversation in America at the time and the just sort of the social response. I don't think it's a coincidence that we go from uh, a much more, shall we say, warm and fuzzy ADA uh, in Carrie Lowell to the very <laughs> aggressive, almost libertarian Angie Harmon. Uh, right. And, and the, the, the way that the way that the show comments back and forth uh, with the writing, but also the performers, too, is really interesting to me. And uh, I think a lot of actors of the actors who've been on Law and Order don't necessarily get the respect that they deserve. You know, I have to say, I'm hearing what you're saying about the show not getting the respect it deserves in one sense because it's was on too long and was on a network and it was too broadly popular to ever receive the kind of critical esteem of a show that's on an on a cable network or that is able to be to hit all of check all the boxes of what we consider to be prestige drama. Though but it on did the other really hand, well in the early going for itself. Well, yeah, and on the, I think it got nominated for the best drama series Emmy like twelve times, and it did, yeah. did actually win one yeah. time. So the, I feel like Watterson has an Emmy or two for this as well. I think. Yeah, the the Emmy nominees for the show were Watterson, Stephen Hill twice, yeah, uh, Benjamin Bratt. But I think that one of the actually the reason that I one of the reasons that I love the show is that it is populist in the sense that it can be mindlessly entertaining. But then at the same time, if you do want to turn your brain on, in a lot of the episodes, there's really something for you to consider. Yeah. Like there, there are episodes of the show that actually made me question my own moral stance about mm-hmm. things, which is nice. And then sometimes I just want to find out which rich lady was sleeping with her own son before they were both going <laughs> off to guilty. Oh, young Livia. <laughs> she also slept with Jack McCoy. Oh, the the reason that I feel like Law and Order is underappreciated, everybody loves Law and Order, basically. Uh, but the reason that it, to me it feels underappreciated is that when you see any list of the best shows on television or the best shows in television history, there's always a handful that make the top, like ten or fifteen. I don't really feel like Law and Order is ever in that conversation, and I feel like it deserves to be. Yeah, you know that's okay. That's a good point. It's like. In the critical, like, logbook that we're going to pass down to our children or whatever, that the show, I think, it, you're right, it is in danger of being forgotten. And I do think it's partly because we tend to honor what Noel was saying earlier, which is the planned <laughs> season. I think that we tend to really honor the, like, effort of, of planning something over a season-long or five-season-long arc. And that was never what Law and Order was good at. But we, you're right; we should not discount the the power of what they did too. Mm, now I'm mad. Yeah. Okay. Right. And here's the thing: is like to me, yes, it's a different kind of challenge to do a five season arc or a four season arc or what have you. But then it's also a totally different challenge to say, all right, you have to start over from scratch with this framework already in place, and you have to do 22 episodes for 20 years. That's really difficult, and really, you have to make it entertaining every week. You have to make it interesting every week. That's that's a whole different set of skills and challenges that a show has to meet. And I think that because of where the television landscape has shifted away from the Law and Order model, and even the shows that it spun off shifted away from the law from its own formula 
and crafted its own type of space is that this was something that was really difficult to do that you had to do week in and week out that we a ended up taking for granted i think in a lot of ways and that now we're just like oh it's not that impressive to do that every week and i'm just like no it's still really really impressive that you're able to do that every week well and who is doing it every week right now nobody yeah well there's a lot of procedurals but they tend to be more uh, of a particular lighter tone and more going for the the banter personal and the personal like will they won't they romance that's why the cop not a cop thing is so frequently driven by by romantic chemistry but sarah what was that what did you mean when you said who's doing it like what in the it what did you mean there uh in a straight procedural homicide dicks solve the case sense with very little emphasis on um on the like interpersonal relationships either among the squad except for Lenny being like, I got ties older than him, which was like a two second (laughs) scene, which needed to happen because Logan leaving was a BFD. Like I practically was in black armband mode about that shit. I don't mind telling you, (laughs) but but they're not focusing. Like if you look at SVU, which I think I'm the only person left still looking at SVU because it's my job. (laughs) They're in season 17, and it's all about, like, Lieutenant Olivia Benson's adopted baby and, you know, who's doing it on the squad and who's taking it personally. And Law & Order was like, okay, there's going to be some of that around the periphery that's necessary to understanding this world. But other than that, we find the body. Lenny makes a joke credits we're gonna do this there's gonna be a guy who will be questioned but is too busy working and like stacking cases of bottles or whatever they're gonna arrest somebody at minute 23 that's the wrong guy then we flip to the da's office and Stephen hill says something grumpy and puts his hat on and then we're gonna go to court and then there's gonna be cellos and then mccoy's gonna nail the guy like (laughs) that formula mccoy's gonna make the guy nail himself yeah yeah (laughs) exactly or, like, make Robert Clohessy start, you know, bellowing like a maniac and then look pointedly at the judge and then you get a guilty verdict. Like, <laughs> I'm making it sound crappy and formulaic, but first of all, I don't think the word formulaic is necessarily um, a pejorative. And second it's of all, not. it's, like, that formula, like, it's apparently not... Either they don't think it's appealing or it's much harder to do than it looks. And I think uh, Noel's point is extremely well taken, listeners, because they had to do it 22 and often more like 24, 25 times a season when they started out. When they started out, these episodes were like 46 minutes long and not the 39 we get today. And it's I think it's hard. I think that writers often fall back on like let's get some like not soapiness but like it's melodrama. a lot of melodrama. hard to do yeah and without the and who is doing inter- it i can't think of it and right because what 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 this conversation keeps making me see maybe for the first time with this much clarity is that in doing that type of formula the formula actually does give you the opportunity to talk to america about itself without yeah. being ostentatious or pretentious. And it, it's like, okay, like I'm maybe one of three people in the country who's really enjoying watching the show American Crime. And even oh, no, I know that American fantastic. Crime... Yeah, Noel okay, and I great. are two and three. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> great. 
So, but even, I think that we can agree that American crime takes itself a bit more seriously than law and order, but it's sort of attempting to do the same thing. And I just feel like it's interesting to see that law and order was able to tackle American identity with the same seriousness that uh, American crime is doing, but with, but with a slightly less self-seriousness. And I like both shows, don't get me wrong, but like, I just think, yeah, now I, now I feel like we need to, we need to agitate to get something else like this back on the air. Well, it's like I was talking about with um, someone on Twitter, um, uh, Vogan Poetry. Kate. It's Carl, yeah. Carl. I was talking with Carl about this, and one of the things that I really miss about not only just procedurals, but also, well, really procedurals, but also just dramas that have 22 episodes to them is the fact that there's room for experimentation. And while Law & Order didn't really experiment, it was able to find things to say and do that were interesting that you couldn't really necessarily do because serialized shows have to live within themselves so much. Even like when you carve out space for personal dramas, you have to keep that stuff going and then weave it in. And this, like you said, Sarah, it exists on the periphery and gets woven in very, very seamlessly, but just out of sight at the same time. And I think that's, the value of the procedural is that it gives you that space to either go really big with what you want to experiment with, or you can backtrack and well, not backtrack, but back into your standard modus operandi. And I think that that's the value of something that isn't serialized basically is that you can change yourself up and figure yourself out and experiment. Well, and when we're looking at these different experiments, and, and the the ability of the show to function as a discussion of you know so, sociology basically in the country, uh, I think it's important to go back to the format of the show as well basically order and law, but law and order, and the fact that this is very much or very frequently it's two shows stuck together with one case, so you get to have enough different characters interacting in a crucial way on the case that you get different perspectives on it. But you also then can have uh, the, you know, Lenny makes a sarcastic or kind of jaded comedic barb at the crime scene and and have one half of the show take a certain tonal approach to it and then hand it off and know that we're not going to spend 45 minutes with Jack McCoy moralizing at us and being indignant, but we're going to get, but I would, we're going to get at least 15 minutes of that. And it's going to be really, really satisfying. So there's enough time that you can, you can get be intrigued by the mystery and trying to figure all that out. And then if it's one of these ripped from the headlines or one of these, you know, Jack takes a stance episodes, we get the satisfying, you know, screaming against the darkness but not enough to 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 make us go. Okay, we get uh, Jack. We, it's your thing. We get it. Okay, let's move on. It doesn't exhaust us the way that some of these other shows pointing right. a finger at humanity so often can. I think that's also at times when it's a less balanced season of SVU. That's a, I can have an issue with that or criminal intent in the same way, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, having you know knowing that you're only going to get. 20 minutes with one half of the investigation, I think, uh, can be a really important thing for the show. Oh, definitely. If I may, I think that we have forgotten one very important part of the formula, and that is the very last moment when they're all getting in the elevator or pouring a <laughs> shot in the office. Mm-hmm. And there's always some little bone mole that just at the end of the day, it's like, 
Well, we just heard two, 20 years to life. Well, better go home and kiss your kids tonight. Depends on where you kiss them. And then the credits run. I just always <laughs> love that, like, the, the, like, they're at the end of the day, sleeves rolled up, and there's one last joke that you can make before the end of the, before the, end of the day. I know. And the, like, rich tapestry or, like, the contrasts among which DAs, like, poor Mao Collar McGee, Nora Lewin. I love Deanne Wiest, but <laughs> she did not belong on the show. No. And they give her the weirdest shit to say. Yeah. Did she just be like, I guess I won't be getting Chinese tonight? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, once you notice that she always gets kind of a non sequitur, you start really looking forward to seeing what they stick her with. <laughs> she was really miserable, too, from what I understand. She hated working the hours. And I'm just like, wait, what? How You're on the show for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that ta- we're already over our time, but that takes us to uh, maybe what can be we can try to make our lightning round here at the end of yes. favorite characters, uh, biggest question marks, like stern look at the show. Really show. Are you sure about this? And any other final thoughts that we have? Uh, who wants to go first? Um, I'll go first. Uh, my favorite character is Mike Logan. Um, because he's foxy and often, spoke for me about things frosting his cookies. <laughs> no disrespect to Lenny, but uh, Logan is what sucked me into the show initially. Um, biggest question marks. This isn't really a question mark, but this Elizabeth Rome's infamous exit uh, just... I think that's everyone's the other night. And I was like doing something like just out of the room and my husband like yells... I think it's a lesbian, which <laughs> he meant, and like came running back in. And sure enough, she's sitting down with Arthur Branch. If you think about how much the writers, like how much resentment had to have built up over years of her mangling their lines for them to kick her off that way, it just was so out of left field and weird. And to the very end, her line deliveries were terrible. Like her last two words were just like, Mm. you're not even making eye contact with anyone. How did you get this job? (laughs) Actually, a little birdie told me she's pretty sure she knows how Rome got the job. But enough about that. I don't want anyone to get sued. Um, And I think peak law and order is the uh, Los Angeles triptych that was like the their take on OJ. Okay, I can never not watch it never not watch it it's so good and bad and weird and there's so much overacting and i love it (laughs) mark yes okay my favorite character is abby carmichael because good choice so she's such a hard ass and i just love that she's constantly taking the wind out of jack mccoy and i really like jack mccoy but there's just something so great about the way angie Harmon is always like the perfect example in the one of the very early episodes, Jack McCoy comes in and has brought them both lunch, and he's like, "I got ribs and salad. I didn't know what you ate." And he hands her the salad, and then she goes, "Great, I'll eat. You graze." And then she ha- she grabs the ribs and pushes the salad to him, and I'm just like, "That's right, girl. No nonsense. No nonsense needed. No nonsense, Brooks." And I just enjoy that. I also enjoy that she. Unlike, I think Arthur Branch sort of came on and picked up the mantle of her more conservative politics, but Abby Carmichael always did it with such 
fire and always seemed to have this underlying commitment to justice that I found very, in- not inspiring because whatever, she's not a real person, but I just was like, this this lady and I disagree politically on some things, but I think she's really cool and I respect her. So I like Abby Carmichael a lot. Um, for me, the biggest question mark, and this is super specific and maybe no one else even remembers this, but there's this episode where Jeffrey Tambor is a judge and he starts weeping all the time in the middle of the trial and like he's just his, his character is completely distracting for oh, no reason okay and it's yeah. not an episode that ends with oh it turns out that it was always the judge who was the, the criminal it's like there's his his histrionics on the stand have nothing to do with the rest of the episode yeah. they're just it's and it's like what the hell it's like what, real good wifey with how he's sort of a weirdo and then it just doesn't go anywhere Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I always just felt like, how did this get past anyone at all? Um, and then the other, the for me, just the final, I guess, random other thing I'd like to bring up is another great joy of the show that we haven't touched on yet is that when you are watching an older episode and you see an actor who eventually became really famous yeah. show up as a witness, you get to have the thrill of realizing that they did it. <laughs> <laughs> So when like when Claire Danes swans around in the back of an apartment during an interview, you're like, oh, keep your eye on that one. And it's just it's really fun to see like or like the best example ever is when Laura Linney was the woman who mm-hmm. killed the Japanese guy. Oh, my oh, yeah. God. And she would be a justifiable homicide. Yes. And when she's just part of that parade of witnesses at the beginning and then they're like, they spend 15 minutes going after somebody else. And you're like, just just it's Laura Liddy. Go after Laura Liddy. <laughs> like, I just find that very satisfying. Every now and again, I watch an episode where I don't actually recognize one of the character actors. It's rare, but it happens. And it's, it's a very different experience. And I wonder if this is what it's like for people with a healthy relationship with TV who haven't seen all these people in a million things. Uh, so that was, an, I had one of those the past couple I have days. I no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, Noel, what stands out to you? Uh, McCoy is by far and away my favorite character, which I, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but I mean, he's just great. Claire's like a, just like second place. Um, but no, I love Jack. I love his moral outrage at just the drop of a hat. And But I've also always just found him like dealing with his political bent, but also his uh, Catholicism just really fascinating and really, really interesting. And something you don't always get to see a lot of on television. And so I always found that tension within him as, and him willing to talk about it really interesting. And I guess for me, like, one of the big things to, like, look at and is kind of like peak Law and Order. And another reason why, like, I miss Law and Order and I miss that mothership. And this goes back to us talking about guest actors and this sort of thing. But I miss the fact that Law and Order was, like, the safe space for comedic actors to go and try to be serious. Oh, yes. Larry Miller. Right. It's just... It was a really safe, I like wrote an essay about this like eight years ago, like a really small one, about the how the formula of Law and Order provides a really safe space for comedic actors to try to be serious because the structure of the show keeps them protected, basically, so that they can they can feel free to be dramatic, but in a really ensconced area so that if they mess up a little bit, it's okay because the show's going to be able to go on without them. 
But it's just a really it's a really interesting thing about the show that I really miss is that you could get these kind of really funny actors to come on and do something pretty serious or pretty dark or just kind of ridiculous like Chevy Chase coming on to play Mel Gibson. <laughs> and um, so, no, I think that's actually one of the things I really miss. And it's also just, I think, one of the peak things about Law & Order as like a cultural thing is that you got to see some really funny movie actor come on and be really, really serious for an episode and then get an Emmy for it. Well, and be, unlike on SVU, which there's a lot of these kind of stunt casting mm-hmm. things that I really enjoyed in SVU, but if they're on SVU, they're playing a really fucked up, twisted sicko. And there's, they've got a little more potential range. You didn't see, you know, fill in the name of the famous actor and go, oh, okay, so they did it and they're going to have like a secret torture dungeon somewhere uh, for children. Like, they got, there was a more of a chance that they could do something outside of their traditional, like how they're perceived on television, but it doesn't necessarily have to be one of the two options, yeah. you know, that SVU might, might give, at least at certain times. I, I, I have a fond place in my heart for SVU as well, listeners. I don't want to be just, you know, uh, criticizing it th- this whole time, but when it eventually ends, we'll do an SVU shelf and it can get its own time. Uh, we've, we've given the praise to a lot of characters. I do think it's important to, like on the whole, I, I really like almost all of the characters, on Law and Order, uh, which is an impressive thing to say for a show that had this many regulars over 20 years. That's very impressive. But somebody's got to say Lenny, and somebody's got to say Anita Van Buren, because oh, they're yeah. amazing. Oh, God. Hell Anita, yeah. I feel... Yes. I love the that they ended how they ended. That they ended with, uh, you know, the series finale is Van Buren's retirement party, and that they didn't kill her. I'm like, a... a <laughs> a dick of a show would have had her get like killed her off and had that been and was, i was just i'm very grateful that they didn't do that to us in in the finale and they let her kind of go off into the sunset um but uh yeah i mean i, I think it's also very hard to underemphasize just how good you know they, they found the show found certain character types or certain voices that they knew would be very, like the actors are very very good but it was an important voice to have on the show and they kept them as long as they could and those are lenny and anita and mccoy uh and and those having those staples on the show for as long as they were and then letting other characters come in and play off of them i think on the whole worked very very well for for the series um a moment to mention uh first of all mark you mentioned abby i was watching the school shooting episode that has Abby and uh, the Carrie Lowell character comes in to be the defense attorney. And there's a lot of really great stuff in that, that episode, but I was just so enjoying her. I don't care about this kid. He killed four people. Let's just, let's throw him in jail forever. The, <laughs> the just, there was implied bitch dripping off of everything she said. Like every single thing she said should have ended with bitch. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, so, so I wanted to, kind of mentioned that with what you're saying, Mark. She can be a little much for me sometimes, that character, but I, I did enjoy that. And the other moment that I need to mention as just gut punch of gut punches is how they killed off Claire with Claire and Lenny and just, like, I can still... I haven't seen the episode in probably a decade, but I can still remember Lenny kind of dazed getting out of the car, and it just... It still kills me. Um, that is really good shooting to that like sort of oppressive sense of like that you've been drinking through the day and then it's nighttime and just like the nightmarish quality of coming out of a bar like um like McCoy does like at that time like you're just all drunk and what time is it 
the the show has always done a really good job at make at really feeling like it's here in this place and giving you a sense of emotion through the through the cinematography too. Yeah. And my question, Mark, is uh, I haven't seen the episode. This is one of the few I haven't seen. Uh, but the way they killed off Annie Paris, uh <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, a yeah. lot of people died on this show. Uh, and I, I, mean, I guess I, I kind, of, kind of like that they were willing to go there with the character. But that's... that's... Listeners, if you don't know, they, had, they killed off a main character off screen and had her be, like, brutally tortured and beaten. Like, not and... like she got shot by a mugger or something, but really bad and then she didn't even get to be the central element of her episode because then what really that episode ends up being about is the mafia or the mob or whatever invading the courthouse so like they kill poor annie paris and that's not even what the episode is about yeah so it's kind of hard to decide which one which send-off is worse you know for the for on like an acting level of what they can like what they gave the actor to do or what they had happened to the character that or you know what they do with Elizabeth Rome but um that's my question mark I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'll need to watch the episode to really form an opinion but uh I wanted to mention that as well uh we've gone like 50% longer than we were supposed to so <laughs> totally my fault I knew this would happen we love talking about this that's because it's an awesome show, and I'm so glad that you guys were able to, to join us to talk about it. Uh, uh, Sarah and Mark, uh, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Sarah? Uh, I am the East Coast editor of Previously.TV, where we have lots of fun with TV. And if you go to the EHG tab on Previously.TV, that's where you can find our podcasts, including the Law & Order draft featuring Alan Sevenwall. And I think that if you like Law & Order, you will really love that episode. Uh, come and read and listen to what we're up to and post on our forums. Mark. I do a lot of writing for Previously TV, including I cover um, American Crime, RuPaul's Drag Race. I just wrote this week what I feel is an important cultural statement about a Vanessa Williams video from the early 1990s. So good. Uh, but then my, my primary gig is that I am the editor of TDF Stages, which is a magazine based in New York City that covers Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway. And my, I guess the other half of my life as a writer is uh, that I cover the theater for TDF Stages and a lot of other places. And you can find me on Twitter at I am Blankenship. Well, thank you guys one more time for coming on. And thank you everyone for listening. Noel and I will be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.